That song fits our our um, text today, which is the story of Esther. Um, and I, I think we we all know the basic story of Esther. Esther was it's funny. It starts out really like a um, Disney movie. <laughs> um, Esther's parents die, and she's raised by her uncle, uh, cousin Mordecai in a far-off land. And uh, I think we lose the Disney plot from that point on. But uh, uh, that, that's how it begins. And Esther, as we, we know, has the opportunity to become queen, to marry King Xerxes, uh, which takes place. And then once she's queen, uh, she... A, a feud develops or comes to a head between her cousin Mordecai and one of the palace officials, Haman. As a consequence of that feud, Haman uh, wants to execute, use his power to execute Mordecai, and not just Mordecai, but now everyone that is of the same uh, nationality, same ethnicity as Mordecai. And so all Jews would be killed throughout the Persian Empire. Esther uh, is approached by Mordecai to use her position to save her people. And after a period of communal fasting and and prayer, um, she is able to present her case to the king, who, as we read uh, earlier, has Haman uh, impaled on poles. I know older versions say hung. Uh, Whatever their method of execution was Haman and his family are no more and the Jews throughout the empire are uh, permitted to defend themselves against anyone who would attack them. The book closes and in many ways the book is written simply for this purpose to explain the Feast of Purim. Why did the Jews observe the Feast of Purim? And so the last couple of chapters are um, sort of laying out the decrees that Jews should practice this feast. And that was also included in our reading. Now, Esther lived about uh, 50 to 100 years after Daniel, after the uh, uh, destruction of Jerusalem or, or the first invasion of Jerusalem, first exiles. It's a a little tricky to get all of the dates lined up as they sort of cover a range of years. And so so she's not that far removed from Daniel, but she's about 500 years prior to Jesus beginning his ministry, to to give you an idea. The story takes place in Susa, the Persian capital. So... Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Samaria, was destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Jerusalem, was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire, in turn, was... We, we covered this a little bit in Daniel, or mentioned it in Daniel last week. The Babylonian Empire was destroyed by uh, the Medes and Persians. And by the time we get to Esther, it's pretty much the Medes are forgotten, and uh, it's the Persian empire there are some serious questions as to whether this is a historical 
book or whether it is more of a uh, a screenplay kind of thing like a Shakespeare play but whichever way that we take it, it it's a real it reflects real life it provides examples illustrations of lessons that we can learn from and so this is our final message in the series adrift and this title describes esther as well as it describes anyone i think our vbs version of esther not only sees her as a courageous person but also as a woman of great faith i think our grown-up version has to be a little more nuanced than that um Esther is a Jew living in the Persian capital of Susa. As I mentioned, she's an orphan raised by an older cousin, male cousin. And in marrying King Xerxes, Esther assimilated into Persian culture. Like, not just, she didn't just marry a Persian. She married the Persian king. And so... You can't get much more assimilated into Persian culture than by marrying the king of Persia. We say culture, but that also includes religion. It it includes the festivals to the gods, the astrology, the way that decisions are made, the, the expansion being there as the spoils of different military victories are brought back as the kingdom expanded. The empire expanded. Esther was at the palace. The hustle and bustle of everything that was going on in the kingdom happened there. And so she assimilated into Persian culture and society as much as any immigrant possibly could. In fact, nobody knew that she was a Jew. Think about that. How Persian did Esther have to seem for nobody to know that she was a Jew. Compare that to Daniel, who everyone knew was a Jew. Daniel prayed three times a day at his window facing Jerusalem. People knew they could trap him because of his faithful worship to God. Esther, we're not told anything about her faith as we're introduced to her. She is, for all intents and purposes, Persian trying to appear Persian, putting her Jewishness behind her. And Mordecai is her one link to that Jewish community. I think if Ezekiel, who we talked about several weeks ago, could have a one-on-one conversation with Esther, I imagine he'd be critical of her in the first half of this story. He'd be critical of her lack of religious piety, her detachment from her community, her marriage not just to a Gentile, but to a Gentile of another faith. And yet, this female leader gets her own book in the Bible. Perhaps this sort of murky um, characterization of Esther makes it inevitable that the lessons we learn from the book of Esther will challenge our comfort zones a little. 
Because Esther was adrift. She, she had um, you know, clung on to the Persian empire and culture and, and that was where she had moored her boat. But she was adrift from God without family connections. Uh, she was part of the harem. It was probably a pretty political place as different women tried to vie for the attentions of the king. Uh, I don't know what support systems it would be reasonable for her to have in that environment. And so I want to look at uh, a list rather than last week's we've sort of had one main point. I want to give you a little list of things that we can learn from Esther that maybe will help us as we navigate our own way through our period of drifting. The first one I have is that God can and often does use unexpected people to accomplish his purposes. I think back to Hebrews chapter 13 and there we, chapter 11, there we have the um, hall of faith. Okay? Uh, and different people are, are listed through there. And, and when you go back and you look at their backstories, you know, you get the investigative reporter that goes back and says, hey, is this person really worthy of, you know, like if they're running for office, they do the deep dive into your old Twitter feeds and everything. Like if we go back and do the deep dive on Abraham, uh-oh, we got some problems here. We go back to, to Jacob, we go, uh-oh, we got some problems here. What about Samson? Uh-oh, what about... It's not listed in there, but if we were to look at the Apostle Paul, right? Uh-oh, he used to persecute the Christians. And, and included in that group of people that have struggles in their past is Esther. Unexpected people. If you approach them at a particular point in their lives, you would say there is no way that God can use these people. They're not even interested in God. Or they're interested in God, but they've got no reliability, no dependability. And so when we're adrift as a community, perhaps more than at any other time, God can use unexpected people for his purposes. And we need to be aware of that possibility. It's easy for us to create in our own minds an image of the kind of people that God uses for his purposes. They're people that attend church twice a week or three times a week or more, praying every day, wearing a suit on Sunday, holding down a respectable job, driving a car that doesn't have an oil leak. I mean, these are the, the, the kinds of people that we look for. We just announced, you know, we just went through a deacon process. And these are the people that should be leaders within the church that are committed and demonstrate that commitment to the church. One of the things I've observed over the years is that oftentimes it's not the leaders who institute dramatic change in the church with new ideas. It's people from unexpected places that say, here's an opportunity, here's something I'm involved in. Will you come? Will the church come and participate and join with me in that? And I think when we're adrift, there are certainly opportunities for people with skills that haven't been appreciated before to step up and, and to be appreciated. Perhaps they're younger Christians. They're not going to teach a Bible class, but they can do this. 
They have a passion for that. And they're committed to God with what knowledge they have. And so we need to be careful individually and as a church not to overlook younger Christians struggling in life and struggling in their faith because God doesn't overlook them. And we shouldn't either. And so God often uses unexpected people to accomplish his purposes. It's our job not to be surprised when that happens. The second point I have is that in, our, in this time of our own adriftedness, I made up a word there, we need to ask, is this an opportunity that God is giving us? You see, it's not just that God uses unexpected people, because when we do that, we're looking outside ourselves. What if you, or if you want to personalize it, say, I am the unexpected person that God wants to use? Even before looking at other people, take some time to look in the mirror. You see, there was this transition that came in Esther's life. Mordecai had come to her and had said, here is the problem that we're facing. And she wrote back and, and gave some instructions, and then Mordecai wrote back to her. Mordecai says this in chapter 4, probably the most well-known verses in the whole book. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Esther do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Have you... Lawson Road, have you come to this point in your life for this moment? Are there opportunities that God's giving and you're not taking? That you're saying, I'm safe in my house, in my palace. But if I go out there, if I do that, if I try this new thing, if I exercise this gift that I have, then... That's scary. But we need to ask and consider, has God equipped me and prepared me and given me skills and relationships and connections for such a time as this? Are there opportunities? Not everybody is Esther. Not everybody says, this is my moment. But it's a question that we need to ask. How does my skill set, my giftedness, match up with the needs that I see around me at the moment. Sometimes when we're adrift, we just want to sit there. And that really leads me to number three. The scripture's silence isn't always prohibitive. Sometimes it means get up and do something. Sometimes it means get up and do something. You see, Esther and Mordecai, at the end of the book, with no authority from God, no prophet giving them a word from the Lord, created a new 
national holiday. This holiday is still celebrated today. Uh, it's kind of, I've, I, I did a little research, it's kind of a mixture between Halloween and New Year's Eve uh, for, in the Jewish community. And people dress up as villains and uh, have, a, have a good time with it. They were never told to create this holiday. And yet thousands of years later, it's still being celebrated. And and it's being celebrated as a reminder of God's deliverance. And so I think it's a reminder for us as individual followers of Jesus and as as a church to develop a mindset that clearly distinguishes between commands and areas of freedom. We need to encourage a, uh, a culture, a climate of creativity and innovation in order to, to tell the gospel, to connect people with Jesus, to encourage each other. Too often we get comfortable in the way things had always been done. I wonder if Esther and Mordecai had said, well, this feast, you know, I mean, this was a good event, but... We're not told that we can have a new festival, a new event on the calendar. The ones we've got are already pretty good. Then maybe we'd never know the story of Esther, the story which is really the story of God and God's deliverance. And so uh, we, I, I understand the tension there between not going beyond God's instructions, but we, we need to be clear about his instructions and our areas of simply comfort. The last two observations that I draw from this book are sort of more to do, not specific events, but with the book as a whole. And the first is that the the book involves God's people resisting hatred and racism. That's really the whole point of the book, that the Jewish people as they're integrated into Persian society, living amongst the Persians, many of them appearing to be Persian, are facing threats for their life, simply because one person wants, has a grudge against Mordecai and therefore wants to kill all of the Jews. He just lumps everyone together and says, if one of them is evil, they're all evil. If I don't like one of them, I don't like any of them. That's a pretty severe level of hatred, right? To, to say, I don't want to just kill my enemy. I want to kill my enemy's nation. And, and Esther is a book that says God stands against that. God defends that. And, and it explains how it is. But that's the opponent, is that hatred, that, that prejudice that uh, perhaps really one of the first, not just in nations fighting against nations, but within the Persian Empire, this may be the first instance of anti-Semitism that we see. And so you can imagine down through the years how precious the book of Esther has been as they have faced, as, as Jews throughout history have faced prejudice and discrimination and hatred from other people groups around them. To be able to come back and say, that God still defends us. God still 
cares for us. Remember what he did back then. And so when, when we're, we're drifting, these causes can um, bring us together. You see, it was standing up against wrong, standing up for her people that brought Esther the, the, to a point where she revealed her ethnicity, where she revealed her family connections, where she distinguished herself from the Persian society into which she had assimilated. And so there are crises that, that we face in life, even when we're adrift, even when we're trying to keep everything calm, that we have to take a stand against. And that can be significant. And then the last one here, and this is where I'll spend most of our time as we finish, is that the theme of the book, as I, I, I read this on a, a Jewish website that was explaining Purim, and I thought it was good and I'd use it. The theme of the book, uh, one way we could summarize, is that God's preservation of his unbelieving people. And I think we perhaps struggle to, to say, why are they unbelieving people? We need to go back and remember where the story is taking place. These are among the Jews that are settled and comfortable in Persia. There are a lot of Jews that have gone back to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah have already rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls. They've, they've, they've you know, resettled. I mean, it's not as great as it was before, but, but that's where the action is. There are prophets over there of God that are speaking to the people at this time. In the meantime, we've got a whole bunch of Jews that are happy living out there in Persia. And so they had done what Jeremiah told them to do. They've planted their garden, they've married their... And, and some of them, no doubt, are faithful. Some of them, are no doubt, are committed to God. And we see that when... But, uh, when Esther tells them to fast and to, to pray and seek deliverance. But many of them had become part of Persian culture. They didn't have religious practices that they had back in Jerusalem. Uh, that had all changed. And so many of them had gone on with life without God. And this was a wake-up call for them. In the men's class on Wednesday, we're studying faith. And the reason we're talking about it is because faith doesn't just happen. You don't wake up one day and say, oh, I have faith. I think I'll go move a mountain. We, we, faith is something that for many of us, there's a point in our life we don't have. And there's another point in our life that we do. And, and we, we come to know Jesus and we say, yes, I'm willing to trust my life to him. And we're, we're baptized and we begin a walk with Jesus following in his footsteps. And, and that would be nice if our faith just from that point was consistent and upward trended and moved us closer to God. But we all know that there are times where we struggle. Perhaps there are patches. We're not sure if we're doing what God wants to do, if God is really who I've understood him to be or someone else. And sometimes they're patches. Sometimes they're seasons. Sometimes there are extended periods of time between one conversation with God and another. And so our faith can be adrift. 
when the rest of our life is going along swimmingly, our career may be going well, our educational goals are met, our family is stable, we're happy with life, but our faith is adrift. And the book of Esther teaches us that in those moments where from a spiritual perspective we're living in Persia, God still loves us, cares about us, and listens to us. God delivered the Jewish people who had chosen not to return to Jerusalem. He still heard them when they cried out to him. And he delivered them and he never required them to take the journey back to Jerusalem. I think he expected them to worship him, to reconnect with him. But that's never explicitly laid out. What's next just ends with a big party. But God cared for his people. And I can imagine the folks in Jerusalem saying mean things about the guys in Persia that didn't really care about what was important, that weren't really committed to being Jews, maybe even questioning their Jewishness. And so God still cares about us when our faith is adrift, when we're struggling. God delivers the unbelievers. In some ways, in this respect, Esther reminds me of another woman in the Bible, a woman that Jesus encounters in the Gospel of John. The woman doesn't live in Jerusalem. She lives in a, another land. She's married to the wrong person. And what faith she has has been assimilated into the local, regional religion. She doesn't go to Jerusalem for the festivals. She keeps her own. We know her simply as the woman at the well. And Jesus sits at a well in John 4 and he asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. She responds. It's a fairly simple request, right? But she responds, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, she understood the ethnic tension that existed in that moment. That even something as simple as water was crossing a boundary. The Samaritans were uh, people that had been resettled in the northern kingdom of Samaria during the Assyrian Empire. The northern kingdom had been taken away, many exiles and exiles from other places had been brought to Samaria. They'd intermarried with the local Jews, they'd developed their own religion, and, and the, the Jews that from Jerusalem that could trace their lineage back to Abraham looked down on the Samaritans as not real Jews. And if they're not real Jews, we shouldn't have anything to do with them because we don't want to corrupt ourselves like when a Jew comes in contact with a Gentile. And so the Samaritans, excluded from the Jerusalem temple life, developed their own temple, their own prophets. They still kept the Pentateuch. That was their scripture, the first five books of of the Bible. But none of the rest of it, just those first five books 
And so they were sort of Jewish in their religion, sort of Jewish in their ethnicity, and not at all. They were one drop Samaritan. That was enough for the Jews to have nothing to do with them. And Jesus responds to this woman with what would have seemed unusual kindness. He knew her struggles. He knew her relationship struggles. He knew her racial struggles, her faith struggles, her feelings of shame and inadequacy. And Jesus shares with her a vision from the prophet Ezekiel, from somebody, a prophecy, a a vision given in exile. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. God loves and delivers unbelieving people. Since our theme is adrift, I've been using these images of boats in the middle of water. And the water is terrifying in those images. It's vast. It's lonely. Sometimes the wind blows, the waves rise up, and it's ferocious. Other times it's calm as glass. Whether it's ferocious or calm, either way, if there's no way out, that expanse of water is deadly. But Jesus says when you're adrift on this water, with nowhere to go. He says, one way of thinking about my answer for that is that I offer you living water. I want us to leave today with this vision of living water that is promised to all of us. We find this vision in Ezekiel chapter 47. Um, beginning there in verse 1. The man brought me, Ezekiel, back to the entrance to the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate, led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to, up to the waist. He measured off another thousand But now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? I think if we pause there, we see that what started is like, oh, look, there's this water coming out from the temple, coming out from the altar, coming out from the presence of God. We go, that's nice. That's refreshing. That's pure that's living water, but we reach a point where it's overwhelming that this torrent is now 
threatening to sweep us away, that we can't get to the other side, we can't access it, that, that, that God's goodness or whatever, however we view that, is just too much for us. But then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on either side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En Eglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and the leaves for healing. This water of life that flows out from the, the, the presence of God through the temple into the world transforms the world. The Dead Sea, we know it now for its salt, and, and it's called the Dead Sea. And it was known back in the time of Ezekiel as for its deadness. And it was so dead that it was the epitome of dead, and yet Ezekiel says God can bring life to the Dead Sea. And if God can bring life to the Dead Sea, He can bring life to the world, He can bring life to you and to me. Whether you're one of those unexpected people, whether you're one of those people that, that are just saying, perhaps this is the moment you've been waiting for. Whether you are someone um, that, that is reaching a crisis that doesn't know what happens next. Or you're just one of those people who are adrift with your faith. That that water of life is accessible for the woman at the well. It was drunk and experienced by Esther and Mordecai as God delivered them from impending death. And it's available for you and I as well. It's water of life that brings peace and healing. I pray that you drink long and deep from that this week.